At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you speak through your word, that you long for us to hear you and to believe and to be changed today. And so I would pray that you would do that very thing among us, that your spirit would take your word and that he would change our hearts and our lives. Lord, give us a depth of, uh, and a capacity to be, to be people of wisdom and not of foolishness. Help us to be prepared for that day when Christ will come again and to be able to stand ready before him. Lord, give us mercy this morning. And as, as I communicate your word, Lord, would you strengthen and help me and give me clarity of mind and thought. And would you open up our ears so that together we might receive your grace for us in your word. And Lord, would you let us be the good soil today that we hear and we obey and we respond in faith. So we ask for your help now in this. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever put off preparing for something and even something good until it was too late and then, and then, and then you just lost out? Have you ever had, like, you're looking to prepare for some of the great things in life, some of the really good things in life. You want to enjoy them. You want to experience them. But from a lack of preparation, you end up missing out completely. It just doesn't happen. One family this morning was telling me of how they hadn't quite prepared well enough for a flight that they were about to make and, and needed to be on, and instead were delayed by fast food. Um, it's higher than fast food, in and out. It's, it's much better than that. But, but in preparation, they almost missed their flight, or in lack of preparation. Sometimes we, we look at the negative of that. We might want to go to a concert and, and be excited about being at that concert and experiencing that, but we know the ticket sales are going to go fast. 
and, and yet we don't prepare well enough to be, to be on Ticketmaster to buy those tickets right away and have a seat at the concert, and we miss out by our lack of preparation. It could also go the other way to a positive. Sometimes there are great things that we want to experience and do in life, and so we prepare ourselves. We, we do what we need to do and what is necessary so that we actually get to enjoy it. A couple years back, I had the opportunity, and I was invited to go hiking with a, good, a couple good friends of mine. And to do that, to hike Half Dome in Yosemite, we had to prepare. Uh, one, we had to get a permit to be ready to go and, and be able to hike that. They only limited uh, the, the climbers to 300 a day. So we had to prepare that. I had to prepare the pack with the, the food and the tent and the sleeping bag. And I, and I had to prepare my body physically by at least working out in some capacity or another so I can make the climb and, and get up the cables to the top of that mountain. There was preparation that was needed in order to enjoy the, the, the momentous occasion of standing on the tap, top of Half Dome with my friends. Preparation is part of enjoying the good things of life. But preparation is also part of enjoying the eternal things, that, that we must be ready and that's what Jesus has been teaching, and this is what he's been saying to his disciples and to us through this, through this word, through this Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24 and 25. His disciples, he said something radical to them, that, that not one stone on top of the temple, one stone on top of another would stand, that it would fall, it would be destroyed. And they, in their minds, begin to think, well, that means like the end is here, like everything is going to fall apart. The Son of Man is going to come again. And so they put those two events together, and, and Jesus taught them about this, the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, but he wanted them to see and kind of disconnect those two events in their minds and help them see that in this time, in this life, for however long it might be, be between Jesus' vindication, his ascension, and between his return when he comes again, however long that time might be, we as his disciples must be ready. We must be prepared. And so he talked to them. Last week we looked at chapter 24, 36 through 51. And, and you may remember what Jesus said about that day when he will come again. He, he told us, nobody knows. No one knows the day or the time when the Son of Man will come again. Not the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. We saw very clearly that, that none of us are to try and Scope out or plan, like, here's the date or there's the date and, and predict it, but we are instead to be ready for that coming whenever it will happen, because it will happen. And so we're to be prepared. We are to be expectant. To help them and to help us this morning craft lives of preparation, to help us so that we don't miss out on the glorious things of eternity, Jesus teaches a parable, and this is what we find in chapter 25, verses 1 through 15, uh, 13. Jesus gives a story, and he wants his disciples to envision what it's like to be prepared. He, he plays a contrast out. And the contrast is between five wise bridesmaids, you could call them, and five foolish bridesmaids. And he sets this story in the midst of a Jewish wedding ceremony. Now, in this comparison and in seeing this, we want to understand that Jesus' parables, not everything in the parable has a direct correspondence, nor should we expect everything to have a direct correspondence. He's just telling a story, but his story has a point. And so what Jesus does here is he likens the king, kingdom of heaven to 10 young unmarried women, maybe think of bridesmaids in this context, that are part of this wedding celebration or party. 
Weddings in the first century were different than ours today. Uh, today, our wedding kind of ceremonies and, and situations happens where there's like a, a 30 to 45 minute ceremony, and then it's followed by a big hopping reception party that goes late into the night, and everybody has a great time, and there's music and dancing and food, and it's just wonderful. From what we can tell, that's not what a Jewish wedding ceremony was like. A Jewish wedding ceremony actually involved a lot more. It was a multi-day event. It involved the entire community. It was a celebration with huge meals and a community party. And it was just like the all-encompassing thing that was happening in that community or in that village for that week. It was just the thing. And we don't exactly know what the, the um, particular elements of a wedding ceremony in the Jewish culture were. We, we get some glimpses here and there from the scriptures. And it seems like what Jesus is talking about or describing here is at some point in the wedding ceremony, maybe at the very, very beginning of it, the bridegroom would come and, and, and get his bride. And as he came to get his bride, he would, he would go through a procession or a parade. In Jesus' story here, this parade or procession happens at night. And so the expectations are that the bridesmaids would be ready, that there would be some sort of decorative luminaries that are out there, so they would have these lamps lit with oil, and it would be kind of like this processional in the night as the bridegroom would come to get his bride. It's kind of actually a really beautiful setting when you think about it and how it's depicted here. But what Jesus is telling is this story of this processional parade as the, as the bridegroom comes to receive his bride and the lamps are lit, he wants us to think about not so much the bridegroom and the bride, but about the bridesmaids. Are they prepared for the part that they play in the ceremony? Are they ready for the coming of the bridegroom? Half were, half were wise, the other half were foolish. So let's, let's just dive into the story here a little bit, and I want to just pull out some details to help us think about what this story is. So, so Jesus says in verse 1, the kingdom of heaven will be like these, these 10 virgins, these 10 young unmarried women, these bridesmaids, who took their lamps and they went to meet the bridegroom. So somewhere at the outskirts of the community, somewhere they've laid out, here's, here's where the processional parade is going to happen, the bridegroom's going to come, and the bridesmaids are going to have their lamps lit, and he's going to show up. Jesus says five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. Now here again, Jesus is making a contrast. He wants us to think about, are we foolish or are we wise? Are we living in wisdom or are we living in folly? But what made the five foolish women foolish? Jesus says when, they took, when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. That's the singular thing that he defines as their folly. They didn't have any oil for their lamps. You might think about it like this way in our, in our modern context. There's 10 bridesmaids, and they're going to do a light show with their cell phones, right? They've got their smartphones out and the flashlight on it, and they know how to strobe it and do whatever that is. Think. Five of them show up, and they've charged their phone fully. They left the house. They made sure it was plugged in. It's at 100% when they get ready for the processional. Five of them, they've got their phones, but they didn't charge it, and it's on like low, low, low battery and like 2%. Like it's not going to last the celebration in the evening. Five of the foolish women took their lamps. They took no oil with them, but the wise one took flask of oil with their lamp. Now, here's where the story hits the tension. Every good story has a tension moment. It has just that crisis of like, okay, what happens now? How will this be resolved? And Jesus is our master storyteller. He, he leans into a tension moment for us. The bridegroom was delayed. 
Jesus doesn't say why. He, he doesn't tell us what happened. He just tells us that the bridegroom was delayed from appearing at the time everybody thought he would be there. So the foolish bridesmaids with their lamps and 2% battery charge were sitting there thinking, well, he'll come up relatively early and we'll be ready to light the way and it'll be great. And he was delayed. They have no way to, no way to get oil. They haven't charged their phone. They're, they're just, the delay is there. He doesn't show up as expected. And so it got later and later in the night. The bridegroom was delayed. They all became drowsy and slept. It's like, we don't know when he's going to come. The night gets to bearing on. They're all tired. And it's like, okay, let's take a power nap. Let's just, let's just rest until he comes. And when he shows up, we'll be, we'll be ready and available and, and be excited about this party. So they all became drowsy and slept. Now note here, Jesus does not incriminate them for sleeping. That's not his point here. They slept. They all slept, all 10 of them. But at midnight, he says, there was a cry. In the Greek, actually, it's in the middle of the night, so it could be very, very late in the morning, and this cry happens, hey, the bridegroom, here he is, he's coming, come out and meet him, light the lights, get the torches out, here he is, it's going to be great, play your part in the ceremony. The cry comes, and, and so if, you, if you've ever been waking up in the middle of the night, suddenly you know just kind of the disorientation and the what's going on, and where and when you think about where are I, where am I for just a moment? Like that's what's happening here. And so the, the bridesmaids begin to scramble. They're kind of figuring out what's going on, just kind of maybe doing up their hair just a little bit to get ready. Here he comes, and the foolish ones realize they have a problem. They don't have any oil in their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Can we charge our phones on your power? Like, help us here. We have no oil. They're going out. And the, and the wise bridesmaids, they say back, they answer back in verse 9 and say, since there will not be enough for us and for you, rather go to the dealers and, and buy for yourselves. And they're not being stingy, they're just saying, hey, if this party is going to come off well and it's going to be excellent, if we give you our oil, then we won't have enough for anybody. It'll be a great and much bigger problem. So they tell these unwise women to go and, and buy from the dealers. They should have planned ahead. They should have been ready. The wedding wasn't a surprise. The bridegroom coming wasn't a surprise. They're playing that part of lighting the luminaries. That shouldn't have been a surprise. It's always been on the itinerary. It's always been part of the, the order of the celebration. They just have not prepared. They haven't been ready. So, so Jesus says, and it's kind of maybe humorous in this, while they were going to buy, where are they going to buy in the middle of the night? You know, there's not a, a quick mart 24-7 place that they can go and get oil. They've got to go and try and secure it. And so they do, they try, and while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. He showed up. And those who were ready lit the lamps, and they went in with him to the celebration, to the marriage feast, the culminating event of the wedding, and the door was shut. The community, the bridal party is in the house. They're feasting and celebrating. And these foolish bridesmaids they're out. They're off trying to find oil for an event they've already missed. And this is where the parable makes a little bit of a turn. Jesus takes it from a realm of just telling a story to bringing the story into reality. He, he, he brings it into our lives. It's not, notice here what the women say. They knock on the door. They're, they're, they're trying to get entrance, and they, they say, Lord, Lord, 
open to us. Not bridegroom, bridegroom, but Jesus brings the story into reality. There's a picture, a depiction here of those standing outside heaven, outside the gates of the kingdom of God, knocking, Lord, Lord, enter to us. And Jesus answers, truly, I say to you, I did not know you. It reminds us of Jesus' words from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." The same language here, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. And so Jesus says, as he brings the story into reality, he makes a concluding point in verse 13, watch, therefore, be ready, be prepared, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. It's the same thing he said in chapter 24, verse 42, therefore, stay awake, be prepared, for you don't know on what day your Lord is coming. Now notice here what, what Jesus is saying here. We do not know when he will come again. We don't know when his second coming will happen. So that means that we must be prepared now, today, in this life. At this moment, we must be ready for him. Jesus here is making the contrast between wisdom and folly, between what true discipleship really is, what true readiness actually is. And it's a readiness that is waiting for and prepared for the day of the coming of the Lord. The, the, the point here that Jesus makes is that true disciples make provision to go the distance. The true disciples are ready for the coming of Christ at any time in the way that they live we're not foolish, but we're wise, seeking and being ready for that imminent coming of Christ. True disciples are prepared for that unknown day, even if it's a long, day off, a long way off. We hope for that day to be today, but it may come in 10 years, 100 years, another 1,000 years. We don't know, and so we must be ready. No one knows when Christ will return, so we, we might get lazy we might think he'll never come, but Jesus wants us to be ready and be prepared. He doesn't want us to be foolish, but to be wise. So what does that look like? What does it mean for us to be wise, to live prepared for the coming of Christ? Well, let me, let me draw out some, some implications of this. What does wisdom really look like for us and being prepared. It's one thing to say, be ready, be prepared. Well, what, is, what does that actually mean? How are we actually wise and not foolish? Let me draw out three things. First of all, superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. To be wise isn't to be superficial in your spirituality. It is to be prepared. Now think about here, what's the difference between these five foolish bridesmaids and these five wise bridesmaids? All 10 of them knew the wedding celebration was happening. They were in the bridal party. <laughs> They'd gotten the invitation. They knew their part in the ceremony, right? You're, you guys are lighting the lamps. You're going to be there when the bridegroom comes in the parade and have those lamps lit and go in with him to the bride. So they, 
they knew their part. They knew what they needed to have, lamps, oil. They needed to be ready. But the difference is the foolish ones did not prepare. They took no oil with them. That's what sets them apart. They weren't ready. They went through the motions of being a part of the bridal party. They had the appearance of being prepared. They've got the lamps, but they didn't realize they had a problem until it was too late. The bridegroom was announced. He's coming, and everyone gets up, and they're, they're stirring about, and they're trimming their, their lamps and getting those ready to light. The foolish realize, who, uh, uh, there's no oil here. We didn't bring it. We truly weren't prepared. The reality is that superficial spirituality is insufficient. We can go through the motions of pretending to walk with Jesus, pretending to be part of His family, looking apart, and yet not being truly prepared in the heart. Remember what Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who has a right proclamation or knows Christian doctrine will enter but it's the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Wisdom is, is a prepared life, a life that goes beyond the, the, ex, uh, the externals and a, beyond the superficial to the depths. So attending worship and singing songs and, and even learning the Christian language, even doing spiritual things in the name of Jesus can be merely superficial religion. We won't be prepared for Him. That surface spirituality isn't truly changed from the heart. But Jesus says wisdom is, is from the heart, and He's after our hearts. That's been, his, that's been Matthew's emphasis in this entire gospel. Wisdom, truly knowing and obeying and following Jesus. We can perform the right religious deeds, but our hearts cannot be affected. You can come and hear the Word of God preached and your heart not be changed and transformed. You can desire to serve people, but it just be out of an act and not truly a depth of love to God and to your neighbor. Superficial discipleship is discipleship that's out of convenience. What that looks like is that we just want Jesus to fit into the already structured and framed out ways of our lives. Jesus becomes some sort of add-in. If he works for our schedule, great. If it doesn't work, if, he, he's, if he's inconvenient to our schedule, well, too bad. If there's other things that are more pressing and more important, Jesus can sit in the back seat. He can take the last row, but, but he doesn't get the center of our lives. That's superficial discipleship. Being ready to go the distance, wisdom prioritizes Christ. It makes Jesus the center of your life. It makes Him the controlling and dominating ruler of all things in your life. Think about it this way. I love the fact that Jesus uses a wedding as the framework for His teaching, and I think it really fits here. The wedding ceremony is a date in front of the couple that's like their lives get all kind of reoriented around that date. Stephanie and I are counseling some, some couples right now that are getting ready for their wedding, and it's really exciting. And what we notice in the conversation is that's what they're thinking about. They're thinking about the date and the event of the wedding and getting prepared for it. And it's right and good that that life-changing date on their calendar is something that they're prioritizing and they're preparing for. 
So they begin to plan deeply. You know, the couple starts uh, thinking about and preparing for the wedding. They, they send out save the dates to their friends and family and say, hey, you better clear the deck for this date. We want you there. We want to celebrate together. And, and, they, and then they send out the invitations and like, please RSVP, let us know so we can make preparation. And, and, the, and the bride goes and she picks a dress and, and the groom goes and he finds a tuxedo and, and they pick out the cake and the flowers and the decorations and all the stuff because that date, that life changing date on their calendar is a priority to them. They want to enjoy it. They want to celebrate it. They want it to be momentous. The wedding isn't something additional to their lives. It's not something superficial. Oh, we'll deal with that when we get time with it. Or it's, you know, it's just not a big deal. It is priority. And yet there's a date coming for us as well. A date for every one of us when we will stand before Christ. The date of his second coming, we don't know that date, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't prioritize his coming, that we shouldn't prioritize him, that he should be the center of our lives. Why do we treat Christ as secondary or tertiary? Why do we, why do we put him in the back of our lives? Or, or when it's convenient for us, we can include a little church, a little spirituality, a little Jesus in there. But otherwise, we've got better things to do. That's superficiality. Being ready, being wise, isn't fitting Jesus into your already busy life. It's making Jesus the center of your life and organizing everything around Him. He must have first place. So the first principle of wisdom here is that superficial discipleship will prove insufficient. Superficiality is foolishness. Secondly, the second way of wisdom for us is to see that delays will test us. This is the conflict of the story, the delay. The bridegroom was delayed, and that delay reveals foolishness, and it reveals wisdom. You see, preparation for anything is hard, right? To just to get, sometimes it's just to get out of, the, out of bed in the morning and get to work, to prepare for that. It's a hard thing to do. Preparation is always difficult. We've got to plan. We've got to think ahead. We have to be wise. And when there's a delay that comes, that can make it all the more difficult. When something that we long for and we are eagerly expecting gets pushed out and delayed, oh, it just, it, it, brings up all sorts of frustration within us. We felt that in this last year. Like COVID has delayed a lot of things. And the hard work and the preparation of that causes us to struggle. We may feel that way about the delay, and if I can put it this way, the quote-unquote delay of the second coming. It frustrates us, right? It reveals whether we really prize Christ or whether we prize the things of this world. Do we really treasure Jesus or do we treasure the things of this life, the things of this world? And we take some postures towards the second coming. One of those postures is apathy. We, we just have it in our minds and our hearts. You know what? It's ne- like it's never going to happen. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure he'll come back, but what, who cares? What does that really mean for me today? Not much. I'm not going to change much. It doesn't, there's no need to get ready. It's just it'll, he'll come back when he comes back, and we'll just get on with things. There can be a true apathy in our hearts, and that's foolishness. Delay tests us into apathy. Another, another posture is that of cynicism. The world, especially the lost, look upon the teaching of Christ coming back again, and they scoff. <laughs> they mock it. They're like, yeah, whatever. You get one life, so live your best life now, right? You only live once. 
Or as the preacher of Ecclesiastes says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Like, this is it. This is the best. And there is a growing cynicism, even among the church today, because we feel this delay. And it's like, okay, he's never coming back. Let's have it all now. This world becomes priority. But the way of wisdom in the delay tests us to preparedness. It helps us be ready. And that preparedness, that posture of preparedness says, Christ will come at any moment. And I don't know when that is, but my life and the way I live must prioritize him and be ready for his coming. Peter spells this out in the letter of 2 Peter in chapter 3. He, he puts it like this. He says, there will be a day. In those last days, scoffers will come with scoffing. That's the, the cynic's posture. The delay tests them. They will come with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? They'll even be cynical about the word of God. Where is the promise of his coming? But Peter says, don't overlook this fact beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as is one day. God's timeline is way different than ours, so we can't even try and measure it out. His timetables are so different. But the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. We look at it, okay, there's this delay. It's been 2,000 years since Jesus ascended to heaven, and when's He coming back again? Is He coming back? The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as we would count slowness but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So we, we say there's slowness, but why is that slowness there? Why is that delay there? It's because of the love of God and His patience. He's delaying, so to speak, His Return so that we'll repent, so that we'll come to Him, so that we'll be embraced by Him, so that we'll be ready. But that day will come. It will come when we don't expect it, when we don't know it. It'll be there. And so Peter concludes and he says, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you, are, ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God. We are to be ready because that day will come in lives of holiness and godliness, obeying Jesus, following Him, putting Him at the center of our lives. The delay is testing us and it's asking, are we preparing in repentance? Are we taking the delay as Jesus' patience towards us so that we repent and we follow and we walk in holiness? Or is this delay, as it were, a moment and a movement into apathy for us. He'll never, oh, doesn't matter. He's not coming back. We just kind of let it go to the back of the mind. We just live our way now, or even cynicism towards Christ. That's what folly looks like. Folly says he's not coming back. It doesn't matter. I don't have to be ready. And we will miss. We will miss the, the banquet, the glorious realities of the kingdom of heaven. So superficiality in discipleship is foolishness. Delays test us. And a third thing that comes up as far as wisdom and folly is concerned is that preparation cannot be borrowed. Preparation cannot be borrowed. You see, this parable is not about a lack of generosity or that there isn't enough grace to go around. Grace abounds and it abounds and it abounds. The, the distinction here in this parable is that there were five who were foolish 
And there were five who were wise. And the foolish ones tried to mooch off of the wisdom and the preparation of the wise ones. But spiritual preparation, being ready as Jesus describes it, cannot be borrowed. Being ready is not something that we can expect others to carry for us. I wish I could be prepared for the second coming of Christ on your behalf, and you all could just relax and take it easy. But that's not the way it works. This isn't like some group project that you, that you had in, in high school or in college where like two people in the group did all the work and the 10 people in the group benefited from the two people's work. Paul puts it this way. He says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Each one of us will stand before that judgment seat of Christ. We will give an account for our lives and I can't supply your lack of preparation. No one else can either. This is, a, this is a heresy in the Roman Catholic Church in their teaching. To this day, they teach that your good deeds and the good deeds of all the saints are shared. There's a, this communal treasury of merit, as they call it. And everyone can benefit from it. So if you're a little deficient in your preparedness and in your wisdom, ah, somebody else will cover it for you. A quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, just so you know, I'm not making this up. This is their doctrine. In the communion of saints, a perennial link of charity exists, or love, exists between the faithful who have already reached their heavenly home and those who are expiating their sins in purgatory and those who are still pilgrims on earth. There is no place in purgatory, by the way, but that's what the Catholic Church teaches. Between them, between the faithful and those who are still on their way, there is an abundant exchange of all good things. In this wonderful exchange, and I'll emphasize this, quote, the holiness of one profits others well beyond the harm that the sin of one causes others. Thus, recourse to this communion of saints lets the contrite sinner be more promptly and efficaciously purified for the punishment for sin. Or to put it in simple language, hey, others got you. They'll take care of you. Their good deeds will overflow and take care of your lack of them. Friends, let me say this as lovingly as I can. That is demonic teaching. It's hellish. It will damn you. It's contrary to the clear teaching of the Scriptures for many reasons. One, we cannot be purified from our sins by our own good works. You can't wash away your sin. You're in endless debt because of your sin. But second more, and here's what's all dangerous for us, is that my good works and your good works can't be credited to another to help you get into heaven. We must be reconciled to God ourselves. We must come to Him and receive His grace by faith. You can't assume that because your parents are Christians that you're just going to get into heaven as well. You can't presume that because you live in America America is a Christian nation, maybe, that you're going to get into heaven. You can't presume that because you're in proximity to a church that, you, that you've attended here that you're going to get into heaven. You must be born again. You must repent and come to Jesus. And that's the good news for us. Because you may hear this sermon and you may go, well, wow, I've got to do a ton to get ready, and I'm not. And the good news is Jesus has done everything for your preparation that he has come and he lived the perfect life that you could not and have not lived. 
that he has earned righteousness for you. If there's one person who can give to you righteousness, it's Jesus and his perfect righteousness. And Jesus has come and he has lived that perfect life and he has died on the cross to purify you from your sins. That, that he went to the torture and agony of death on your behalf to purify you, to forgive you, and to cleanse you. And that on the third day, Jesus was raised in power and glory to life again so that anyone, as the gospel proclaims, anyone who hopes in Jesus will be saved. Anyone who hopes in him will find heaven, will come into the kingdom of heaven. So you might say, what do I have to do to prepare? What, am I, what must I do to be wise? It's to repent and to acknowledge you've been trying on your own, and it's to come to Jesus and his righteousness and his goodness and to follow and obey him. It's to walk with him, to put Jesus at the center of your life. Now think about these wise women and these foolish young women. In another place, Jesus contrasts wisdom and folly in this way. He says, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise person who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine, Jesus says, and does not do them will be like a foolish person who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Friends, I want you to be wise. I want you to be ready. And to be ready and wise is to come to Jesus. It's to trust Jesus. It's to put Jesus at the center of your life in all things. Don't be foolish. Don't be unprepared. Hear the good news that Christ is your preparation. He is your wisdom. And grow and walk with him. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your work on our behalf. And so, Lord, we come to you this morning in repentance. And we come to you today in faith. We hold out our hands and our hearts and, and we say, Lord, change our lives from, from the hearts, from the center. Lord, Lord, transform us away from our foolishness and our love of this world. Prepare us in righteousness and holiness. So when that day occurs, when we stand before you, when you come again, we will not be ashamed, but that we will go into the marriage feast with you that we will enjoy the glory of being in your presence forever and ever. We will find ourselves by your grace part of the kingdom of heaven. Show us mercy, Lord, we pray. Help us be ready. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.